So let's pray as we look at God's word together today. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can gather to read it, to think about it, that we can gather to understand it, Lord. And we do pray that today none of us might go away, uh, not just understanding this part of your word with our minds, but even understanding it, Lord, with our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen. Perhaps you've heard the story of the preacher who was flying somewhere to do some sermons and on getting off the plane they immediately asked him to go in and to to begin his first one. So he went up into the pulpit and he announced his text, he announced his verse, Behold, I am coming to you soon, as the Lord Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22. And then he immediately realised that his mind was blank. He couldn't remember what came next. So he thought, well, I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll say it again, louder, because that's what you do when you're a preacher, when you don't know what to do, just say the same thing louder. Uh, and maybe it'll jog my memory. So he said, behold, I'm coming to you soon. But nothing happened. He realised he was completely jet-lagged. He had no idea what's going on. So he thought, third time's the charm. I'll do it one more time. So as, as loudly as he could, he said, behold, I'm coming to you soon. And he said it so enthusiastically, he fell out of the pulpit and into the lap of the little old lady who was sitting in the front row. And he dusted himself off and said, I'm terribly sorry. And she said, I don't apologise. You told me three times that you were coming. <laughs> uh, just in case you were wondering, this story is not autobiographical. Although it does explain why very rarely do you see people sit in the front row at church. Uh, now, our passage before us today is about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, something that he promised again and again that he would do on far more than just three occasions. Uh, And Jesus said that when he returns, it would be personal. It would be him who returned. It would be the same Jesus. When he comes, we will see the scars on his hands and on his side. And he said it would be cosmic. He said that no one would miss it. No one would, would be would be able to kind of hide from this moment when he comes in glory with his angels in judgment. And so he also said that this day coming, well, it would be wonderful for his people, but it would be terrible for those who are not ready to meet him. Now, sadly today, the return of the Lord Jesus is really nothing more than a joke to our world. And very sadly, in many churches, it's the same. To speak in any place, in in any way, seriously about the imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment, it kind of makes you the equivalent of someone who's standing at an intersection waving a placard about how aliens are real and living amongst us. And yet this passage says to us that actually not only is the return of Jesus an indispensable part of our faith, it's actually, it's good for us now. It has a good effect on our life now. And that's what I want us to see today as we look at this this part of of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Now, as we've already heard previously, the Apostle Paul, he taught the Thessalonians much about the Lord Jesus, including that he would return. But he was only with them for three weeks. He was forced out of the city. He was chased out of the city. And he left them looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus, but with many questions. And they have two questions in particular about the return of the Lord Jesus that are here. One is, 
in chapter 4, verse 13, and the other is in chapter 5, verse 1. And Paul answers them both. And it's these two things about the return of Jesus that I want to share with you today. Firstly, that the return of Jesus is death-changing. So be encouraged. And secondly, that the return of Jesus is life-changing. So be prepared. And you can see them both on the screen, uh, hopefully up behind me at this moment or about to appear. Firstly then, the return of Jesus is death-changing. So be encouraged. Come to chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now what this is saying is that there is a world of difference between the funeral of someone who does not know and love the Lord Jesus and the funeral of someone who does know and love the Lord Jesus. I don't know how many funerals you find yourself going to. It is something of an occupational hazard of mine. But there is a world of difference between the funeral of an unbeliever and a believer. When I go to the funeral of an unbeliever, it is full of of platitudes. It's full of, of, of words like, you know, they lived a, a good and full life. You know, they, death is natural. It's just another part of life. Death is just another step in the journey. And they're just, they've, they've gone to a different place now. They still love you. They're still watching over you. They're like a drop of water returning to the infinite cosmic ocean. And so really, there's nothing to grieve about. There's nothing to be sad about. Dry your eyes. Uh, There's nothing to be afraid of. Just vain platitudes. There is no hope in anything that they have to say. And strangely, because there's no hope in anything that they have to say, they also, they don't let you grieve. They don't let you be sad at death and at loss and at this person who's been taken away. They deny us the chance to mourn those that we love. At the funeral of an unbeliever, you have no hope and you have no grief. And yet at the funeral of a believer, it's very different. Because at the funeral of a believer, it says in chapter 4 verse 13, you have both grief and hope. At the funeral of a believer, you are allowed to acknowledge that even though death is the universal human reality, it is still wrong. That death is still our enemy. That death still feels unnatural. At a Christian funeral, you can still acknowledge that death is a predator that takes away our friends, that takes away our family, that takes away our happiness, that takes away, even in the end, us. And yet the one thing it cannot take away is our hope. Death cannot take away our hope. Because our trust is in the one who has conquered death. Our trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and died and rose again in victory over the grave. 
And that the promise that he made to us, the certain promise of that most trustworthy of people, was that when he returned, he would share that victory with us. And that we would rise to be with him forever. And so, yes, at a Christian funeral, you grieve. You're allowed to grieve. But you grieve as those who have real hope in Jesus risen from the dead. Now, that little verse 17 that we read can lead us to a little bit of of confusion. uh, Because uh, that's what the Thessalonians were kind of struggling with. That's what the Thessalonians were were struggling with. They, They were worried about those who had already died. They thought that maybe... Maybe the return of Jesus was just for those who were alive when he came. And so what happens to those who've already died? And, and the, you know, would they kind of miss out on this wonderful moment? And Paul's point was, no, no, they won't miss out. In fact, they will go to be with Christ. When the trumpets sound, when the archangel's voice is heard, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we will all go to meet with him in the air, to be with him forever, it says in verse 17. But it does confuse us a little bit because it almost sounds like our hope is that somehow we will kind of rise up into the clouds and what happens next? Kind of what happens after verse 17? Verse 17 actually leaves us hanging, quite literally. It leaves us kind of hanging in the air with the Lord Jesus. You know, what happens next? And most people assume that we'll sort of somehow, we'll keep going up. We'll keep going up and we'll end up with some sort of ethereal future amongst the clouds. But actually, that's not what verse 17 is saying at all. But it is a little bit technical, so just bear with me for a moment. And the problem is that word meet. That little word meet in verse 17. And the Greek word that lies behind that word meet, it means meet, but it means a very specific form of meeting. Uh, and it, it's the, word, the sort of word that you would use to describe uh, something like this. Let me paint a, a bit of a picture for you. Uh, imagine for a moment that we were, we were living in a, in a city and uh, we, we were looking out and we, and we were watching because one day we saw that our king was coming and he was returning home from battle. He'd, he'd won a great victory and we'd heard the news of his, this great victory. We'd, we'd believed the gospel of this great victory that he had won. And now here we are watching and waiting for our king. And when we see him on the horizon, we're so excited to see him that we all rush out to meet him. That's that meet word. And then we become part of his entourage as he re-enters the city in triumphant procession. We come back in with our king, with all the spoils of war that he's won. And so we participate in his victory. We're part of the king's victory and of his conquest. And that's what that word meet there means. It's kind of almost like the the technical term you would use to describe of of being part of a victorious ticker tape parade. Uh, And just in case you were wondering, you can go to Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 to 13 to see that word meet used in the same sort of way. But the point is this. We are going to meet with the Lord Jesus one day on his way to earth in victory. And you and I are going to share in that ultimate victory over death that Jesus has won. We're not going to float into the kingdom of God. We are going to walk and sing and dance and eat. 
For Christ has won the victory over death. And when he comes in new life, we will have new life too. And so says Paul to the Thessalonians, when a Christian, when someone who's trusted in Jesus, when they die, they're but sleeping. And that from that sleep, they will one day awaken. And when they awaken, they will go to be with Jesus, just like us, to share in his victory. The great evangelist D.L. Moody, when he was dying, he, he once said this, he said, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto Jesus' glorious body. See, on that day, in our new resurrected bodies, we'll, we'll see each other, we'll, we'll talk to each other again and, and we'll say to one another, you know what, I, I always thought you could be like this. I saw glimpses of it. But now, now I see you made new and growing newer every day, not older. And now I see you made beautiful and growing more beautiful every day because now I see you made like Jesus and growing more like him every day. Now the return of Jesus is death changing. So be encouraged. But secondly then, the return of Jesus is also life-changing. So be prepared, be ready. Cast your eye down to chapter 5, verse 1, would you? Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, as wonderful as this news was of how they would share in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over death, it still felt an awful lot like pie in the sky when you die, when what I want is steak on my plate while I wait. You know, I, I want something now. And if anyone needed something now, it was the Thessalonians. Uh, Paul has already acknowledged back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that the world in which they lived while they waited for the Lord Jesus was a world of persecution and of hardship. Both the Jews and the Romans were the enemies of the gospel of Jesus. They were the ones who had chased Paul and Silas out of the city after only three short weeks. And now they were the people that the Thessalonians lived side by side with every single day. And perhaps even this question that they had in chapter 4 about those who had died was actually a question about not those who died of natural causes, but perhaps those who had died because they had been martyred for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a city full of false gods and sexual immoralities, the Thessalonians lived surrounded by enemies of the Lord Jesus 
risking their lives daily as they shared the gospel with them, waiting for the triumphant Jesus to appear and to rescue them. And so understandably, they were a little worried. When is he going to come? We need him now. When is he going to come? And it seems that, that, that they're kind of, in some way, that they're, they're worried about the timing in chapter 5, verse 1. And Paul says to them, don't be. Don't worry about the timing. In fact, just let me remind you how blessed and how secure you really are. You don't need any new information. And so Paul reminds them and he reminds us of what we already know. That the return of the Lord Jesus will come like a thief in the night. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. The thief doesn't come when we, when we know that they're going to come. The thief comes when we, don't, when we least expect it. That's when they break into your car or steal your purse or snatch your laptop. And Jesus himself said that no one knows when he would return, not even himself. Not, the son doesn't know, only the father, he said, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. And to claim that you know when the Lord Jesus is going to return is to claim that you know more than the Lord Jesus, which is a very bold thing to claim indeed. And yes, it's true. The Bible says that there will be signs. The Bible in various passages talks about the different signs of the ends of the age, earthquakes and famines, wars and rumours of wars, times of great wickedness, times of great tribulation for believers. But it also reminds us that they're just the beginning. That they're just the signs of a world that is growing in its opposition to the Lord Jesus and to the gospel. And that is the world in which we and the Thessalonians live even now. But it's while the enemies of Jesus are saying peace and security that Jesus will suddenly return. Uh, that little phrase, peace and security, by the way, that's Paul having a little bit of a jab at the Romans. The Roman Empire was the great promiser of peace and security, which came with a terrible threat of violence. It was kind of part of their propaganda. But Jesus, sorry, Paul is quick to point out that it's while they're living their lives, while they're thinking all is well, while they're saying peace and security, that Jesus will suddenly return. And it will be for them destruction. And that destruction, he says, will be inevitable and inescapable. Because just as a pregnant woman knows that the pain of labour is inevitable and inescapable, so too will be their destruction when the Lord Jesus returns. And that must have been of great comfort to the Thessalonians. Great comfort to them living there surrounded by people persecuting them to know that the return of the Lord Jesus would be the moment then when they would be rescued. The Lord Jesus once said that his return would be like the days of Noah. When people were eating and drinking and getting engaged and getting married, when everything was so normal, when the sun was shining, suddenly it wasn't. Suddenly the world was washed clean by a great wave, a great sudden and inescapable flood. 
and only the tiny minority who listened to the word of God were spared and the great majority perished. And so too it will be when the Lord Jesus returns. Now if you're sitting there now and, and, and hearing this and thinking, how can we be sure? How can we know that this is true? This just Well, let me say that you're asking the right question. There is a time when every normal Christian ought to stop and ask themselves, can we really be right about this? Can it be true that actually the Lord Jesus is going to return and only that tiny minority who've listened to the word of God and so are ready will be spared and that the rest will be destroyed? And the answer is yes, we are right. Let me remind you that the one who told us this was the very same one who said that he would die and rise again and he did that. And so we can be sure that he will do this also. The coming of Jesus is certain. And for those who are his people, it will be a day of great comfort. But for those who are not, it will be a day of great terror. So how can we be prepared for the return of Jesus? And be prepared is what we must be. And here most people would go to the next little part. They'd go to verses 4 to 8 that we read out. And it would be very easy to kind of take those verses there and to kind of almost turn them into a list of the things that you must do in order to be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd make a really good sermon out of that, couldn't you, you know? Here are the top five things that you must do in order to be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could really make a, you could beat it up, you know, wake up you sleepy Christians who go to parties, who are weak, who enjoy the pleasures of the night, who go to concerts rather than coming to church. (laughs) You know, it'd be very easy to preach a sermon like that. Except, actually, that's not what Paul does here. There's no commands in verses 4 to 8. Paul never tells us to do anything. And nor is it the tone of the passage. Paul isn't upset with it. In fact, he reminds them at the very beginning, you're not in darkness, this day will not surprise you. You are the sons of light, you are the children of light. Yes, I want you to wait for it. Yes, I want you to watch for it. But not because... Somehow that will mean that you are prepared, but simply because it's going to be so wonderful. Now, if you want to know how we prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to go to verses 9 and 10. So come with me there now. Verses 9 and 10. Here is how we prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. How do you prepare for the coming of Jesus? How do you prepare for the second coming of Jesus? Well, the answer is by trusting in his first coming. By believing in what he did for us when he came the first time when he came and died upon the cross for us to bring us the forgiveness of our sins. 
It's by trusting in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we are made ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so read again verse 10. Have a look at verse 10 again. It's a wonderful verse. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now, some people would say, well, really, what kind of what Paul is saying there is that, you know, whether you are alive or dead, that, you know, we will live together with him. But Paul already said that back in chapter 4, and he's not repeating himself. Uh, And he's actually changed the word that he uses for sleep. He's not using the word that he used back in chapter 4. He's using the same word that he used in verse 6. And so even though he's just encouraged us not to be sleepy Christians, even though he's just encouraged us, be awake, watch for the Lord Jesus, it will be wonderful, it's worth staying up for. Even though he's just said that, he's not saying that because our security rests on our wakefulness, but simply because the coming of the Lord Jesus is so wonderful. But be we a sleepy Christian, be we a weak Christian, be we a stumbling Christian, or be we a strong and, and watchful and awake Christian, we all have one thing in common. Jesus Christ died for us and our sins are forgiven. And we belong to him now. Christ died, so whether or not we do this, we will live with him. Whether or not we are awake, whether or not we are asleep, we will live with him. Our salvation is based not on our performance, but on his. And so how do you prepare for the second coming of Jesus? By trusting in his first. The death of Jesus is so powerful. The death of Jesus covers over all of our failures. Even our failure to stay awake. Even our failure to stay watchful. So be alert. Watch for our King. Followers of the Lord Jesus should live in the present day knowing that Jesus could come at any moment. And despite the nighttime of human evil that surrounds us, we should live as children of the light, as children of the King. We should stay sober and awake as the light of Jesus' kingdom dawns here on earth, as it is in heaven. But our comfort is not in our vigilance. Our comfort is in the cross of the Lord Jesus. Once you have put your trust in him, then you can know that ahead of you is just life. Judgment is behind you, And life is ahead of you. Before you came to know the Lord Jesus, life was behind you and judgment was ahead of you. But as soon as you put your trust in Jesus, there is nothing but life and life with him before you. So let me finish up. You have plans for this year, I know, don't you? Some of you have plans to study or plans for a new job or maybe plans to travel or plans to get married or plans to even start a family. We all have plans, don't we? But none of these things may happen 
Instead, something much more wonderful that you will never regret might happen. The Lord Jesus might return. And you are ready. If you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus and what he did at the cross, you are ready for his coming. You are prepared. And there is nothing that you can do to be more prepared for his return. So watch for it. Wait for it. Live for it. You belong to that day, not to the the nighttime of evil that surrounds us now. But because of the cross, you are ready for it now. The return of Jesus is death changing. But the return of Jesus is life changing now. Because we know we're already there. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is coming and coming soon. And we thank you that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can know for sure that we are ready. Help us, Lord, to know that. And so help us, Lord, to rejoice and to be encouraged as we watchfully wait for our great King to come.